mint trillion dollar coins. They should pay debts. There's the trillion dollar coin movement in the US that says, just create a trillion dollars worth of value and pay down this debt. You kind of go, well, in that environment, does it really have value if you're, if you're contemplating creating the biggest amount of money ever to pay down the biggest debt? It really does challenge people to sort of say, what is money and where is its value? Welcome to the Smartest Podcast, a show that is dedicated to helping you achieve success. I'm your host, John Colderize Lawson, entrepreneur and best-selling author. In this episode, you will hear from one of the most successful people in the world. So get ready to improve yourself by learning from those who have already found success. Yo, people, what is up? This is your boy, John. I've got with me an old, old friend of mine. I mean, I don't know. We've known each other for over 10 years at this point, and it's so good to catch up with Steve. So Steve is going to tell you who he is and why we should listen to him. Go, Steve. I don't know whether I can tell you why you should listen to me, but I can tell you that I have interesting conversations, John. And from my perspective, the thing that I think was a byproduct of our friendship over a long period of time was both of us have remained inquisitive in relation to stuff. So when you and I used to meet many years ago, we spent a lot of time talking about what you were doing, what I was doing, and what the implications of each one of those sort of views was potentially going to be. I've done that in the blockchain, digital assets, and crypto space for the last six years. And whereas most people formed a view about what the thing was, I, I've continued to ask the question, what is it? What could it potentially be? So that's resulted in me having a number of roles in the ecosystem. At the moment, I'm the managing director of a business called Blockchain APAC, where I talk largely about digital assets and the current state of play. That's with respect to regulators, industry, retail, and where this is probably going. Uh, before that, I was the CEO of Blockchain Australia, which was the peak and is the peak industry body for the subject matter that is blockchain in Australia. So a lot of similar conversations over a long period of time, John, and I've got to tell you, they're getting more interesting, not less interesting. That's it. Well, see, that's interesting. So, but I mean, it's serious. Like, um, all right, I'm all, I love, you know, crypto, even on its highs and its lows. I still follow in, but I mean, is is crypto blockchain and what? Uh, where are we going now with the money part, which you were kind of alluding to in the pre-show? So now I want you to dig in. Sure. Tell me what you're telling me. So one of the problems is the brand that is blockchain and crypto, John. Everyone has a view of what it is. Largely, if you ask someone what is crypto, what is blockchain, they'll tell you. Some people will say it's. Bitcoin, some people tell you it's a Ponzi scheme, the greatest scam known to man. Other people say it's fantastic infrastructure that will change the financial sector forever. People kind of already have that in their own head. Part of the challenge in, in discussing this subject matter is you're walking into a conversation with someone who's already formed a view. Very difficult to get them to resolve from that view. For me, I sort of separate out two ends of the ecosystem. There is where true believers live. There's the cryptocurrency view of the world that says we don't need governments this is new money, the system's broken, we're going to fix it. It's a beautiful libertarian wonderland, John. It's where people want to go and never be troubled by, by government again. It's not here in Australia. It's not in many corners of the world. It's, a, it's, it's somewhere that people probably aspire to be. That's not where most of the conversation is, and it's never been where most of the conversation is. The other end of the spectrum, which is much more boring, 
much more business as usual is what does this mean from a payments perspective, from an infrastructure perspective, um, from a track and trace perspective. So they're the conversations that are happening most of the time, they're just not very clickbaity. And so they don't get the attention that the rest of the world um, probably sees on this space. So they're the two opposite ends of the, the spectrum. At the moment, the state of the world in early 2023 is that the retail conversation, the consumer stuff, the speculative side, governments around the world have largely now come together and said, we don't like it. We don't like it and we're going to try to dampen the enthusiasm around it because the risk is high that people will lose their money. Governments are called upon when people lose money and are told to stay out of the way when they're making money. So their fear is let's not let this get back out of control. Let's start putting in some some things in place that make it very difficult for people to speculate wildly to protect them from themselves. So that part of the conversation is deliberately being dulled. On the other side, big businesses, very familiar financial service businesses like the Visas, the MasterCards, the PayPal's, the Stripes, they're all saying, listen, we know that the transfer of digital value, which can be money, um, it's something that's been changed by the technology. And they're looking at this tech stack saying, we think this tech stack makes our business more efficient. They largely don't care what you transfer. Their business is trusted brand, transfers digital value from one person to the other. So they're looking at it saying, does this create a better mousetrap for us? That's where much of the conversation is. It's rare that you've got both of those conversations in the room at the same time, John. People are either in business trying to run businesses or saying, get out of my way. So that's part of the challenge in the way these communications intersect and often clash. So if I'm transferring capital right now, like you say, the PayPal's and the stripes of the world. You know, I mean, that's that. I mean, it's digital money. I never see the actual physical money. All right. So, are you are you saying that or that they transfer these, you know, funds on a old kind of dilapidated system, and they're looking at blockchain as being a way for them to do the same things in the background, where it's kind of like you know, we have as the, you know, user of the thing, we don't, we don't really care. I don't care whether it goes across the old banking system or this new blockchain, as long as when I get into my account, my money's there. Is that the conversation we really need to be having around blockchain? It is, except you disenfranchise a ton of people, John, because a ton of people right. say, we don't want them involved in this thing. Well, you know, they're the problem. The problem is traditional financial services and the way they deal with the world. But the problem in saying that is they're doing something. You, you don't have to be part of it. But the notion that there should be some Puritan's view of what this looks like, it just doesn't work that way. If you are pro um, a network like Bitcoin where you're saying transferring money P2P, then do it. But the reality here is most people live in a world where they have a bank account, someone else is responsible for it. They ask for permission largely to sell, send money backwards and forwards. So they're two very different, they're two very different conversations. And for from real. the perspective of businesses like credit card businesses, it's already the case that if you and I are going to have a transaction now, you, you bill me for something, John, I'll pay the money, it'll come out as AUD and it'll land and it'll be turned into USD. I don't care, I just know the machinery that's happening. Businesses like uh, the credit card providers are now saying, well, if we've done that with a myriad of international uh, currencies, well, what do we care that some other variant of digital value is the, is, is the thing that people want to transact in? They don't. They just go, we just want to be the facilitator of those payments. So that's why they're, they're piling in. And I think you're looking at businesses like Twitter. I think the, uh, the new version of Twitter, if Elon Musk goes down the path and creates a payments business, he will, he will look to leverage technology that makes, again, a more efficient payment rail than the one that previously existed. So he'll take his PayPal experience, turn it into potentially a decentralized 
um, environment or an environment that that is able to utilize cheaper rates. So this is again people constantly trying to find more efficient ways to build their business and maintain margins. Hmm. Okay. So you, I mean, do you what that's a that's an interesting conversation right there. I mean, is that what Elon Musk is thinking with Twitter? I I haven't even you know what you're you're all over Twitter, see? So I haven't kept up as much, but is that one of the things that you think he could possibly get into? Yes, absolutely. I think he said it, it can be a payments platform. If you're already communicating there, John, the question for you is why do you want to jump out of an app you're communicating in? And Facebook, in many respects, really got the ball rolling here. When they said they were going to come out with Libra some years ago and they said right. we're going to run, we're going to use this, what is effectively a sort of a stable point of sorts, you can just do it within within Facebook. In the US, the government had them in front of Congress within about two weeks because they said, hold on, you've got 2 billion plus users. Um, this would be basically the, the largest collection of people the world has congregated ever who want to transact with. It was just too scary. So they very quickly said no, and they slowed all these processes down. The technology has continued to the point, continued to evolve to the point where a lot of these businesses are saying it's likely to be in the medium term at a minimum, um, a cheaper way for us to transfer money on behalf of customers. And if you've already got them there, then why wouldn't you add this as a feature? And that's one of the key things. Part of the disruption here for traditional financial service businesses is their USP is they're a traditional financial service business. You go to the bank, give them money. That's the bit, that's the function they serve. Whereas right now you and I are saying, well, how do we usually pay? Apple Pay, Google Pay. You just don't need that entity to facilitate the payment. It becomes a feature of another app much more readily. So that's where a lot of these businesses are saying, well, we're going to be dislocated ourselves if we don't add this feature in and so that's that's why i think a lot of these businesses are saying if it's easy and the ux that you and i spoke about many years ago from an e-commerce perspective you want to get on there you want to transact you want to press the button you don't want to be putting perpetually and perennially your information into a new um, into a new app or a new program you got, it's all in there your wallet is there it's secure you're comfortable you press the button and, and the user experience dictates that that's what this technology ultimately will allow you to facilitate how is it um how is how is it being adapted in Australia? I mean, are, are is the government trying to work with you guys to, you know, make it more stable or are they still fighting and, you know, um dissing it all the time? Yeah, so the answer is governments all around the world are just figuring out how to deal with this, John. They're one of the challenges for many governments is if you try to ban it, the nature of the technology is someone can spin up a node, someone can spin up uh, a version of this and just it just runs again. It, it is whack-a-mole. So they kind of recognise that this is absolutely a mesh network, whatever it is, you know, Bitcoin shut down tomorrow. Someone could create Bitcoin 2.0, 3.0, 100.0 and use basically the same technology to facilitate P2P things. So that, that genie is out of the bottle. So from that perspective, governments have just said, well, hold on, what do we do here? And, and largely the focus for governments has been around it, will continue to be increasingly. We need to know who's involved in the transaction. That's that's the baseline question for governments, which is, hold on, whose money is it and where is it going? So when That's you, all they really care about. That, that, well, that, yeah, from that perspective, and a lot of the narratives around this are there's, there's terrorism risks, there's nefarious actors, there are bad actors, there are scams. Much of it then comes down to, as it does in the traditional financial service sector, Whose money is it? Can we say definitely it came from Steve's wallet and it went to John's wallet? And then if there's a problem, if you don't like what John's doing with the money, then we know Steve gave it to him. Is that Steve should have given it to him or shouldn't have given it to him? And what did John do with it? That's effectively what 
what governments around the world are trying to do. Now, of course, there are other implications like if it's money being moved, maybe we want to tax it. Who gets yeah, but tax? I'm, dude, you read my mind. I'm like, that's probably number one. You know, the, the terrorism thing could come in later, but we make sure, we got to make sure we get our piece. <laughs> and look, and, and that's, look it, it, cynically, John, it probably many people would suggest it is number one. Uh, they, <laughs> might, they might be right, they might not be. And you, you think about you think about something which is referenceable to that challenge at the moment. Uh, tax legislation around the world. After so many years, after so much complexity in every tax regime in the world, money still moves around the world and people are taking advantage of loopholes in, in, in tax regimes all around the world and you transfer payments and the like. This is that on steroids because you're talking about the, the speed with which you can move value, um, the, the velocity of it coupled with then the liquidity. Suddenly you say, wow, how do you, how do you deal with the fact that this can be moved backwards and forwards in a, almost an instant and it will soon be an instant? You know, how do you deal with that? So it's a much more difficult thing for governments around the world to do. And it's forcing them to say, well, what are we going to do? How do we coordinate with respect to this conversation? Which is why many of the conversations that I'm involved in from a government perspective, they have nothing to do with what Australia thinks or necessarily what the US thinks or the UK. It's like, what do we think? Because it can move in a way that means it'll just go from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And people can jurisdiction shop in theory. But ultimately, people are saying, people who want to build businesses in Australia are saying, we just need a set of rules that, that gives us some confidence that we can build a business here, that we can make payments and we can receive payments. Can we have that set of rules? And governments around the world are trying desperately to figure out what those rules look like, including the United States. Yeah, including the United States. Do you think they're, do you, so, I mean, right now, you know, Bitcoin has dipped. It's trying to recover, you know, but one thing I've noticed is it didn't just like tank. And I think that is more telling than anything right now. You know, it's like this thing could be in, you know, the thousand dollar market right at this point, as bad as it went down. But here it is back over 20,000. You know, um, what, do you, what do you think that says about the future of crypto as a currency for real? Bitcoin has been pronounced dead many, many times. Many, John. many times. And the reality is no one pronounces it alive. You know, you think about the headline. The headline is Bitcoin's dead. And people go, is it dead? Yep, here it is. Bitcoin's dead again. And then you forget until the next person writes the headline, which is Bitcoin is again dead. Uh, so far, it hasn't died. It, it, it is being used. And the thing that it is spawning is a lot of, um, can we make better versions of this? Is there some other business pursuit relation to it? The reality here is there are those that have a particular view of what Bitcoin is. If In a Bitcoin maxi sense, in a Bitcoin maxi still say it's, it's Bitcoin and nothing else. You should only use it in a particular way. It's a store of value and you should buy it and hold it or hold yeah. it forever. That's a view. And then you've got others that say we're going to build on that sort of, on that stack. And Ethereum is a better version of a bit of Bitcoin. And then you go down to a wide variety of tokens and coins that have you know, varying degrees of value or utility. I think the reality is the technology isn't going anywhere. And at the moment, it continues to be, Pardon the pun, the gold standard, the reality of it, it's the most robust, it's the biggest by market cap, it has the best brand in the sense that many, many people who you otherwise wouldn't have assumed would be interested in it, they know that crypto, well, as far as they're concerned, crypto is Bitcoin. So, yeah, you know, right. in news reports, John, all around the world, the notion, if you and I went back 10 years ago and you said this thing that this random person that no one knows or people that no one knows created is going to sit alongside, this is what the US dollar's worth this, uh, this day, this is what the Australian dollar is, and today Bitcoin was worth it's absurd that that is happening, 
And yet people are very quick to discount that is actually happening. It's in the news. Here is the figure. It has some value and it's transferable value to value. I can, I can transfer you some Bitcoin. You can take it to an off-ramp and turn it into cash tomorrow. That's a, it's an extraordinary thing. But over time, people start to lose the sense that it is really that big a deal. It's still a very, very big deal when, you, when you're watching the way this has sort of proliferated over the last few years. So why is it not a scam? Why is it not a pyramid scheme? Or is it? Here's, here's a question for you. And this is, this is a very difficult thing for most people to get their head around. Most people, when it comes to money, the question is, what is money? And you go, well, money is, for argument's sake, US dollar. You go, what backs the dollar? And the reality historically was gold or some standard or, you know, the fact that we didn't think we we're going we're to print money forever. What if the rules have changed? I mean, the, the US now is suffering from this unwinding. You know, there was so much money printed during uh, the COVID crisis. So much money went into so many coffers. Interest rates are extraordinarily high relative to where they were and they've moved at a pace that no one's ever seen. Why? It's because money was printed, not backed. It was printed. It was created for a purpose and put in. So the thesis that says this is this is what money is or isn't, even that thesis is sort of morphed. So the reality on the Bitcoin side is those that believe this thing represents value. You know, there are certain element, elements of it that they that they think. You know, that thesis is a network effect. If enough people think that, then it's the case. So that's a challenging thing for most people to just say, but this is what money is. It's government backed. But it's not government backed if you print it forever, John. You and I, you know, over our lifetime, you've seen countries that have terrible inflation where they just keep printing money into oblivion and it just goes down to basically zero dollar value and then they default on debt and off they go again. I'm watching with the US at the moment where we're back to your debt ceiling, $31 trillion later, the government's going back and arguing about whether we should give you more. Okay, does it ever get paid back? And I know there's a movement that is... Uh, that is, you know, you should mint trillion dollar coins. They should pay debts. There's the trillion dollar coin movement in the US that says, just create a trillion dollars worth of value and pay down this debt. You kind of go, well, in that environment, does it really have value if you're, if you're contemplating creating the biggest amount of money ever to pay down the biggest debt? It really does challenge people to sort of say, what is money and where is its value? Okay. <laughs> you got my head spinning. <laughs> You got my head absolutely spin. And I guess that is what we're dealing with, with this trillions of dollars in debt. And, you know, it's like, hey, we just all need you to vote that we can, you know, pay more money to pay this money so we can keep paying more money, uh, print more money, rather. Okay. Anyway. It's a challenging thing, John. I mean, you think about something when when Greece was suffering through the um, uh, the crisis in two thousand and and eight GFC. Countries got together and said, "Greece, you owe too much money, so yeah. we're going to basically break up a lot of the assets that underpin the Greek economy, so you can pay us back our debt." That debt is inconsequential relative to some of the debts that were accumulated in the last few years. So you look at those two things as well, which is effectively they said to Greece, "We're going to put austerity measures in place. You have to be." the best citizen now in order for us not to call in the loans. And then you go back to the last couple of years where people said, let's not worry about calling in loans. Let's just print as much money as we need to to make sure that the world doesn't come to some catastrophic outcome. How are those two things reconciled? And so in that context, it's not so crazy that this thing might have value where people say, I kind of get it. It's valuable to me. It, it was difficult to create. It is limited in its supply and it's readily usable. I mean, the thing that is... One of the challenges, people go, what's the use case? So here's what the use case is. You and I right now, John, without knowing any details other than wallets, I could transfer you Bitcoin and you could have it in 10 minutes. 
with certainty in an hour, right? As in it would over a period of time with the, with the blocks coming through. Let's go in an hour, you go, here it is, whatever happens, you've got that money. What other mechanism can you and I use to transfer that money at that cost, fraction of the money that we send? What else can we use? And the reality is you, you really can't. You go, there's yeah. some service. I'm going to say to you, what's, what's your bank? What are these bank details? What are these international codes? I'll send it to you. You might say to me, hasn't shown up, Steve. And the bank's told me it'll be here in two weeks and they're going right. to put them on the way through. The technology that underpins that is not, is not Bitcoin-centric, blockchain-centric. It's just better tech. I can transfer money to you almost in an instant and you can get it and turn it into whatever you know you get. That's the promise. And one of the things that is interesting for me to watch, in Australia, we have a good payment system here. It's a fast payment system. You can send money almost instantaneously. There's not a strong use case for a central bank digital currency that is a retail one because you can send money safely, quickly, quite easily. But in countries where banking facilities don't exist in that same way, or in the US where it's fragmented, you know, US doesn't have as fast a payment rail system as Australia does because of the complexity of different jurisdictions, there's a much stronger case to say this unifies that, that process. So again, everything's on a spectrum. People say, I don't need it. And you go, yeah, you don't need it. But if a very significant proportion of the world's population starts transacting on their phones, peer-to-peer -peer, or something akin to peer-to-peer, -peer, yeah, how do you sit that out as a country? You go, your system might be good, but that system allows people who don't know each other to send money at a fractional cost around the world. You can't sit it out. And that's the pressure I think that governments around the world are, are feeling. So when there's all this chat about central bank digital currencies and retail versus wholesale, it's not necessarily that the systems aren't very good in some countries. It's just, what if this is a better system? And people in, uh, in Africa and people in India are able to send money much more readily, much more cheaply. You can't sit it out. It, again, they're building a better system than the one that currently exists. So that's part of the complexity, which is why... I said to the beginning, I'm always entertained and interested in the conversation because these are very difficult things for people to be solving for. But this is going to, as they build these better systems, once they implement or, you know, um, turn this thing on, it's going to put all of this legacy systems and people that run it, people that own it, out of business. It makes for it makes those businesses expensive, John. I mean, ultimately, the, the success or failure of businesses is well, what is your cost base relative to the revenue line? And if I said to you tomorrow, I can run your business at half the cost that you do, yes. you'll be able to do this in true cost over a period of time. There might be some impediments. It might be regulation that slows me down. It might be capital investment. But if I'm saying to you, I can, I can do this faster and cheaper, then at some point, someone says, well, why aren't I doing it faster and cheaper? But, so you can say, but they can say that now, can't they? They can, but there, there's certain challenges here. There are um, the 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 on ramps and off ramps are problematic. So so right now, I think uh, as recently as last week, some other institutions that are effectively facilitating payments from um, digital platforms and digital exchanges to fee are saying we're just not providing you that service. They can, they're choosing not to. They're and choosing so, not to. They're choosing not to. They, you know, and whatever the reason is, it might be the case that someone says there's too much. A lot of financial institutions, quite rightly, are saying they're regulated. They have significant costs in trying to assess whether there's any risk in that transfer. And it's actually not in their business interest to do that work. They step away. But someone will step into that breach, John, because someone will build a digital first business where they don't have the infrastructure of, we don't own lots of office blocks and we don't have lots of electricity and lots of bills and lots of rent. And like, I'm just going to build a business which is much more efficient. And it's sort of that, that tech enabled business. That's what's fascinating 
for me at the moment. When you think about the impact that you know the biggest companies in tech in the US have had on the rest of the world, and I know there's lots of layoffs in the news at the moment that, that are being rolled out through through the likes of Google and the rest, but the 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 amount of economic value being created by those tech businesses is enormous relative to their footprint. They don't generally employ a huge, num a huge number of people. You don't have people in, in the kinds of businesses that are traditional boots on the ground businesses in tech. You can build these things. You look at the phenomenon at the moment that is chat GPT, you know, that's not a business. There they've said we've got 100,000 employees and that's how we've managed to get a million users in a matter of days. It's a smallish team. And that is now something that everyone around the world is aware of. And suddenly it's the it's the, the pylon that says, well, can we create these businesses as well? How do we use these open networks? And again, that's a reflection of the way the tech is working here. One of my theses, John, that says the reason this works is, the reason this wins is um, it's open source largely. And the reality is as big as Microsoft is or Apple is or Google is, if more people work towards an open source project, open source wins because it's just more resourcing. You, you can only own a certain number of team players. If the truth is the biggest company in the world has 100 team members and then an open source project says 1,000, 1,000 should ultimately win, right? Because it's just more people contributing into this thing. And the nature of the, the technology as it's evolved in the last few years is if you are trying to build something out that's in decentralized tech or digital assets or otherwise, and it's a closed network, people tend to shun you. They kind of go, this is more of the same, we're not interested. It's the reason why you have networks effect, network effects and things like Ethereum, because they're saying, well, we're building on this network, on this base layer that you can build on top of, and no one had to go out and buy a license. You didn't have to go to Salesforce or to Microsoft and say, can I buy your blah, blah product, and then have a salesperson say, well, let me try to upset you. You just participate in the network if you choose to. You download free software and you participate in the network, and you can add in a positive sense into the development of the network if you have those capabilities. So... That's the thing that a lot of businesses really struggle to get their head around. They're just very familiar with the notion that says controlled by it is a licensing right. This is, it's just being built. It's just being built. And the question is, how do you want to participate in this? It's a very different paradigm for people to consider. Where do you see right now, if we just look at blockchain, where do you see that um, uh, really being implemented and implemented well, where people are starting to uh, build around it? as in that industry, you know, yeah. contracts or, yeah, tell me. Yeah, for, me it's, for me, it's payments. Uh, payments really? Is, really? Is, yeah, yeah the, the, the activity in that space, John, is ultimately it's it's the grease in the wheel because the challenge with use cases, I'll give you a good example of yeah. the historical use case in plain sight for people. People have been saying blockchain fixes issues in supply chains. The problem with supply chains is they're a mess generally. Proven proven uh, without doubt in the last few years. There's so much complexity in supply chains from start to finish that it's very hard for you to, to create a solution that fixes supply chains because you say, who are you fixing? This end, that end. What's the paperwork? These systems don't talk to each other. There's just too much complexity. And when people say, let's come together and have a shared goal, mm -hmm. that makes it even worse. I mean, IBM quite famously put a bunch of these consortiums together. The consortiums really didn't work. They've wound back all those consortiums because they got a bunch of people that had very different economic incentives and said, let's all come together and agree on what we should do and then benefit from it. Now, that's people management at scale, trickier. Whereas for payments, what you're trying to do is create a bit of software that allows you to transact. And if you get that right and you already have uh, the, the benefit of a large network and network effect, you just deploy the software and so then the question becomes, from a regulatory perspective, 
What are the impediments to doing this thing? That's where we're navigating uh, at the moment. We're navigating through that challenge. And if the regulatory stuff creates more certainty, and that's why I pointed out the biggest challenge that is the KYC side of it. Do you know who your customer is? You know, can you make sure that there is a good person or someone you can really identify on either of the Once that is sorted, then what's the impediment to the technology? And the answer is largely uh, legacy systems. That's where you really start. I think you'll see the wars that our businesses say, if I now can prove that you and I are both good people and I want to use this, why are you going to stop me? And that's when legacy systems, I think, will be really challenged. So this thing that says at the moment, let's not trust it because we can't tell. There's definitely bad actors and all the privacy. But yeah, be careful what you wish for for most of those businesses. That is coming. It's coming very quickly. And once mm -hmm. that's there, what do you do? And ultimately, you and I, we will transact value. We'll, we'll transact value. And the, the, the most obvious example of value is, is payments and money and the transfer of that. So there's so many economic opportunities in that kind of thing. So I think that's that's where people get their head around. Because then you've got two things that are side by side. You say something like Bitcoin or Ethereum in your mind has economic value. You go, great. I hold it as an asset. You go, good. What else can I do with it? I can transfer it as an asset or use it as a mechanism for payment. Before I say, and then I'm going to use it to solve these problems. Before that, there are more obvious use cases in the payment sense. So I think that's that acceleration will continue. And you're seeing a lot of institutions, I think relatively recently, Larry Fink from BlackRock has made the point that everything will become tokenized. That language now is starting to become pervasive hmm. in big fund managers and big businesses around the world. They're saying, well, it'll be tokenized. And the answer is, well, why will it be tokenized or fractionalized? And the answer is because it's faster, cheaper, and creates deeper liquidity. Where does economic opportunity come from? Liquid markets, deeply liquid markets. So they're saying, if this tech allows us to take this thing that we used to have to sell in $1,000 increments and turn it into $1 increment or one cent increments, and we can do it without having the costs of doing that so much higher than the value, then right. why wouldn't you? So you, you'll, be, you'll be seeing more of that, that language and conversation. And they're using examples like um, ESG and environmental concerns and carbon trading. They're new markets. You're unlocking new value. And how do you trade carbon credits that might have a fraction of a cent or a few cents in value? You, you do it on efficient technology like this. So that conversation is, is happening in plain sight if people care to look. But most people who don't like the space, John, for lots of reasons, and I get why they don't. They, they anchor to crypto's a scam. You go, okay, crypto's a scam. BlackRock is a big old business with lots of money under management, and they think there is a path or part of their business to utilize this technology. So wherever you sit on that spectrum, you can find an opportunity there to say, this is an area that I want to go into. And that's what I tend to try to do is say to people, you don't have to pick the flavor if you don't want to, but there are lots of different flavors of this conversation. Man, you got me totally thinking. Totally thinking. All right, I got to hit you with my last question. And this is the last question I ask everyone. And it is very simply, what did I, what should I have asked you that I didn't? Uh, what should you ask me? Are your skills readily transferable into this domain? Because what a lot of people do, John, is they look at something and go, that can't be me or that isn't me. And, yeah. and too often you underappreciate what you're doing and where it can potentially take you until it's too late. So, so that's something that people need to recognise. If you have marketing skills, they're transferable. If you have skills um, in building businesses, they're transferable. It's just seeing whether or not there's a place for you in this conversation rather than discounting it out of, out of hand. And that's, that's one of the very interesting things for me when I stand in front of people and I speak to them, John. I say to them, you don't have to change a single thing, but I want you to remember that if someone point in time in the future, this becomes something. There was a guy that said, you should probably keep your options open. 
So uh, for most people, that's uh, a recognition of what skills they have today and, and whether they can utilize them in where this is going. Keep your options open, people. And don't discount yourself. Just be, And I think that's one of the reasons why people lead with it's a scam because they start thinking about where am I going to be in this new, whatever it's going to be. You know, they feel like it, they might be discounted. So, Steve, thank you so much, brother. You know, all right. So tell the people where they can follow you, hear from you, and, you know, get in touch with you. Where do we find Steve? The two obvious channels are Twitter, where I've been for many, many years. So just at Steve Ballas on Twitter or on LinkedIn. If we want to be serious and talk about serious topics, let's talk on LinkedIn. <laughs> if we want to share memes and talk about how funny the world is or could be or how terrible it is, then find me on Twitter. All right. Steve, hang out for a minute. Everybody else, you're out of here. So peace. <laughs>